You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's pray together. So, Father in heaven, we do ask that you would speak to us now. When Moses asked to see your glory, first you spoke. First, you gave a display of your glory through your words. And so would you be pleased, Father, this morning, as we come to your word, to give us a glimpse and more of your glory to us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. In the year 1539, it's about 22 years after the Reformation had begun in 1517, as Ryan talked about, a Catholic cardinal named Sadaleto wrote a letter to the Protestant city of Geneva in Switzerland, trying to convince Geneva to come back to the Catholic Church. Geneva had a pastor that they had exiled just the previous year. His name was John Calvin. Young guy. Wasn't the senior in Geneva. But he and William Farrell, who was the senior, were sent away to exile for some complicated circumstances. But when the cardinal wrote to Geneva, and they wanted someone to write a response on behalf of the Protestant city, they turned to this exiled pastor named John Calvin. And and Calvin agreed to write the response to the cardinal. In it, John Calvin identifies the main issue of the Reformation as this. The glory of God. Calvin says to the cardinal, your zeal For heavenly life is a zeal which keeps a man entirely devoted to himself and does not, even by one expression, arouse him to sanctify the name of God. In other words, glorify God. All, as as the cardinal went on and on about the joys of heaven and heavenly life, he did not sanctify the name of God, Calvin said. In other words, Catholic theology, Calvin claimed, is man-centered. It does not honor God as it ought. And so Calvin writes, and this is an understatement, it is not very sound theology to confine a man's thoughts so much to himself and not set before him as the prime motive of his existence, zeal to illustrate the glory of God. That's what Protestant theology is about. Luther read Calvin's open letter to the cardinal and said, ah, this is a writing with hands and feet. 350 years later, in 1891... A New Testament scholar at Princeton named Gerhardus Voss identified this zeal to glorify God 
as what enabled Reformed theology to grasp the fullness of Scripture like no other branch of Christianity. Voss said, Reformed theology took hold of the Scriptures at their deepest root. This root idea, which served as the key to unlock the rich treasures of the Scripture, was the preeminence of God's glory in the consideration of all things that have been created. So this morning, on Reformation Sunday, and not just Reformation Sunday, which is the last Sunday of October, but Reformation Day itself, All Hallows' Eve, October 31, we remember our heritage as Protestants as zeal to illustrate the glory of God and as taking hold of the preeminence of God's glory. And it is a sweet providence as we continue our series in Exodus that we turn together this morning to Exodus 33 where Moses prays, please show me your glory. Now this fall, we have journeyed from Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments to then the refracting of the Ten Commandments into the case laws of chapters 21 to 23. And then God formally makes his covenant with Israel in chapter 24. And then Moses goes up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he receives from God detailed instructions about the, na- about the nation's worship. There's this traveling tent that they're supposed to construct called the tabernacle. And there is furniture for the tabernacle and utensils to be used and garments for the priest and consecration instructions for the priest. That's chapters 25 to 31. And then we saw last week the screeching, tragic fall of chapter 32. Just as Moses finishes talking with God 40 days up the mountain, God informs him that the people have corrupted themselves. Chapter 32, verse 7. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that God commanded. In their impatience and in their pride, they have made for themselves a golden calf and worshipped it. Within 40 days of making this covenant with God in chapter 24, they have broken it flagrantly. And so God says to Moses in chapter 32, verses 9 to 10, Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. But as we saw last week, Moses implores God not to destroy the people for the sake of God's own name, his glory, his reputation, and in faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God relents. At least for now, he will not wipe out the people. Great as their sin is, he will spare them. But as chapter 32 ends, we're left with Moses wondering, 
could atonement be made somehow? Could God forgive their sins in some way? That's what's in the air at the end of chapter 32. And so this morning, on Reformation Day, let me draw your attention to three great Reformation truths in Exodus 33. We will tell the story of Exodus 33 in the terms of the Reformation this morning. Number one, total depravity. This is verses 1 to 6. Total depravity. The people receive this disastrous word about their sin. That it separates them from God in verses 1 to 3. And that's not just a word for Israel. This is the word for us too. Look at verses 3 to 6. God says to Moses, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. So he's fulfilling his promise. He's not consuming them. This is already some mercy. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you. Lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. Verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word. They mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses. Say to the people of Israel. You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now, take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb, that's Mount Sinai, onward. So the people are stiff-necked. Which doesn't mean they had a bad pillow. It's an expression of pride. Twice, God says here to the people what he said about them to Moses in chapter 32. In chapter 32, he said, behold, it is a stiff-necked people. And now he says it to their face through Moses. You are a stiff-necked people. And it isn't that chapter 32 made the people stiff-necked. Don't think that their sin began in chapter 32. The making of the golden calf revealed the pride. The making of the golden calf revealed the sin that was in this people. They were arrogant. They did not submit to God's law and his timing. They were haughty. They were stubborn with their own pride. Another way to speak about the condition of these stiff-necked people and the condition into which we ourselves were born is this Reformation phrase, total depravity. In our sin, whether at Sinai or in the modern world, we do not have untainted hearts or untainted minds with which to see God for who He really is and to see sin for what it really is. Total depravity does not mean that we are as depraved as we possibly could be. Thank God for his common grace. But we are depraved in all our faculties. In other words, sin has infected every part of who we are. We do not have the ability to think or feel or choose or achieve our way out of our sin. 
We are dead in our sins, as the Apostle Paul will say in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 4.18, he says, we are darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of heart. So everyone is born into that depravity. We are totally depraved as Israel was. We are stiff-necked in our sin as Israel was. And verse 4 calls it a disastrous word. Because of their sin, God will not go up among the people to the promised land. He will fulfill his word to Abraham and he will send them on. But he will not be among them lest his holiness consume them. There's a ray of hope here in that the people consider this word disastrous. Can you imagine if they said, promised land, we get to promised land, and we don't have to worry about God's presence. How many today want precisely that? I want the promised land. I want heaven. But I don't want God's presence. I would be all the better if we could go without God to this place. John Calvin said that's precisely the problem with the Catholic theology he saw in his day. Promised land with no regard for the presence. So Israel's honeymoon with God is over. Their sin has been exposed. His holiness has been revealed. The nation has been humbled. This is a ray of hope. This is a good sign. The nation has been humbled. They are taking their ornaments off. Look at verse 4 again. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Ray of hope. And no one put on his ornaments. Now they know their sin. Now they know what they deserve. Now they will walk with a limp from Sinai to Canaan without their ornaments. Without triumphalism. Without decor. Without a put on. May God make us a church without ornaments. A people that have been humbled by our own depravity. Humbled by God's holiness. Humbled by God's mercy that he wouldn't destroy us on the spot. May we be a church without ornaments. So, number one, total depravity. Number two, unconditional election. We're going to jump ahead here to verses 18 to 23. Unconditional election. Moses' advocacy for the people that began in chapter 32 comes to its culmination in this brief and audacious request that he makes in verse 18. And then in God's response in verses 19 to 23. By verse 18, Moses is pressed into this tension between the holiness of God and the need of the people for mercy. 
on the one hand, the people deserve to be consumed. And God in His holiness cannot simply be among them in their sin. Given God's holiness and the people's sin, how can Moses confidently go up to the promised land with them? Does not just disaster await them. Just a matter of time for there's another golden calf and God breaks out and consumes them. So Moses needs to know more about this God before he's ready to go up with this sinful people. Who is he? What kind of God is he? Does he forgive? And so Moses says in verse 18, please show me your glory. Moses is asking to know more about this God. And God's response then in verses 19 to 23 has two parts. First, there is a revelation in in a word. And then there is a limitation. First look at verse 19, the revelation. God says to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh, as we have seen. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So on the one hand, this is the kind of answer that Moses is looking for. When God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. He addresses Moses' fear that the badness of the people, their depravity, their stiff necks will ruin the covenant. God does not point to the people's lack of goodness, but he points to the reality of his own goodness. He will uphold the covenant with his people, not because of their goodness, but because of his goodness. His choice to have them as his people is not based on their deservedness. His election of his people is not, his election of his people is without them meeting any conditions to secure his favor. That is what is unconditional election. That was true of Israel at Sinai, and that is true of the church in the new covenant. God is utterly free to choose whom he will as recipients of his mercy with no external constraints. He is not dependent on his people's choice. He is not dependent on our goodness. He is free to choose any people, any persons, He so chooses. Do you know why you can count on his commitment to his people? Not because of their goodness, God says, but because I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. 
And this goodness of God on display in his graciousness and his showing mercy to his people, this is his glory, his weight, his character, his heart. And this is the answer that Moses needed going forward. This covenant is not on the people. And it's not on Moses. This is on God. They will go forward because of his goodness. He has chosen his people. He will see them through his goodness and his sovereign freedom in choosing whom he will sustains the covenant. Which is why the reformers are known for saying, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. So God's unconditional election, his unconditional choice of his people was a precious word to Moses and to the people after Exodus 32. And it is a precious balm to God's people today. And especially in the moments or the seasons when we're weak in our faith. When we doubt, when we're honest enough about our own failures and our lack of goodness to know that cannot be the grounds on which I'm right with God. When we wonder, can God really show grace to someone like me? Can he forgive me what I've done? Can he really have mercy on me? He knows how evil I am. And if that's you this morning, I want you to hear your father reply without equivocating and with a smile, I will be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. I choose you, not because you are good, but because I am. Your badness cannot stop my choice. Your evil cannot spoil my freedom when I set my love upon you. I am free to show you mercy, free to show you grace, free to forgive you. Free to love you, however unworthy you feel. But God is not done. There is not only the answer that Moses needs in the revelation, in verse 19, but there is also a limitation, a glorious limitation. God says, but... In, chapter, in verse 20. Look at verse 20 and following. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. And then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back. But my face shall not be seen. 
So Moses not only will hear the word of glory, he will get a glimpse of glory, but only a glimpse. Not God's face, but his back, so to speak. Moses may indeed know more about God, but not all of God. Moses will need to be content for now with this answer and this glimpse of the back of God's glory. And as God has shown his glory in redeeming his people from Egypt, he will continue to show his glory. As he sustains them in the wilderness that turns out to be 40 years because of their unbelief. And he will show his glory when they come to Jericho and march around the city and don't even raise their swords and the walls fall down. And he will show his glory as he gives them the promised land and fulfills the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he will show his glory as he sustains them in this horrible period of the judges and rescues them from their adversaries. And he will show his glory as he takes a shepherd boy And puts him on the throne of the nation. And makes him and the nation known among the ends of the earth. And he will show his glory as he warns his people. And punishes them with the decline of the nation. And with exile. And he'll show his glory as his prophets proclaim hope beyond the exile. And he will show his glory... When he himself enters in as an infant, laid in a manger, living in obscurity for 30 years, and he shows his glory as he calls and trains disciples and heals the sick and proclaims good news, and climactically, he shows his glory as he gives his own self to die for the people on a hill outside Jerusalem called Calvary. He will forgive, and he'll show his glory when the God-man rises in triumph on the third day. What Moses could not yet see of God's glory, we have seen far more fully in Jesus And especially at the cross. When Moses cried, show me your glory. It's as if God responds, just you wait. For now, Moses, I'll proclaim my name. I'll renew the covenant. You will see part. And one day, I will show the world far more in the glory of my son. And that glory is the gospel of Jesus, who is God himself, died to save idolaters, stiff-necked, totally depraved sinners like ourselves. The gospel of Jesus is the culminating revelation of the glory of God and the fulfillment of the limitation that God gave to Moses. So, total depravity, unconditional election, and finally, Alien righteousness. One of my favorite Reformation terms. Not because it has anything to do with Area 51. 
alien righteousness. Now we already have Jesus in view, and so let's marvel at Moses' Christ-like intercession in verses 7 to 17, as Moses leverages his own favor with God for the sake of the people. This, This is remarkable. Verses 7 to 11 create a very interesting tension with verses 1 to 6. We already saw verses 1 to 6, the disastrous word, the people are stiff-necked, God can't go up among them. And then in verses 7 to 11, God has this amazing favor on Moses. Moses goes outside the camp, far away from the people, and he meets with God. He talks with God. In verse 11, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. So there's this striking contrast between the people who have fallen utterly out of disfavor. They're in disfavor, they're out of favor with God. And Moses, who enjoys this favor to talk to God like a friend. You might wonder at this point, didn't we just see in verse 20 that God said, you cannot see my face? And in verse 23... My face shall not be seen. But then in verse 11, God speaks to Moses face to face. What's going on here? I think it's a good question. The answer is, in the words of one wise commentator, it's about verse 23, the attempt to describe the indescribable strains language to its limits. Verse 20 and 23 aren't literal. The language is being strained to talk about seeing God's glory and what you cannot see in the limitation. And then in verse 11, these are two ways of talking for closeness or intimacy. The point of verse 11 is that God has found this remarkable favor. He is putting this remarkable favor on Moses. So as we close here, Let me walk quickly through three parts of verses 12 to 17 as Moses leverages that favor. Four times in these verses, Moses refers to this favor, about finding favor with God. And he leverages it to bring his own people into favor with God like he himself is in favor with God. He identifies himself with the people. So verse 12 God mentions the identity of the angel. Moses mentions the angel. God has said at the end of chapter 32. And then Moses slides in at verse 13. Consider too that this this nation is your people. When the people had sinned, God had said to Moses, Behold, the people you brought out of the land have sinned against me. God has started talking about them as Moses' people. Your people. They're not my people. Your people. And so Moses says here in verse 13 first, Consider, too, that this nation is your people. Then verse 15, after God has promised to go up with him, God's promised to go up with Moses, Moses moves then from me to us. It's subtle, beautiful thing. If your presence will not go up with me, do not bring us up from here. He's identifying with the people. 
If I'm coming, they're coming with me. Then twice in verse 16, Moses identifies himself with the people. How shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? It's not subtle there. I and your people. Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? In other words, Moses, knowing that he has found this favor with God, seeks to leverage that favor for the sake of the stiff-necked people. And God grants Moses his request. Verse 17, the very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And if God would do that for Moses, how much more for his own beloved son in whom he is well pleased? So as we come to the table, we come to a table of alien righteousness. That's the term Protestants have used to talk about the righteousness which we are justified, fully accepted before a holy God. We, like the people of Israel, are unrighteous on our own. We are stiff-necked totally depraved, unworthy. But Jesus Christ is righteous. He is God's beloved Son. He has found full favor with God. And so our righteousness is an alien righteousness, meaning it's not native to us. We're not justified based on righteousness in us. We are justified based on righteousness, God's full favor in Christ, not native to us, alien to us in Jesus. So Jesus is not only the better glimpse of divine glory, but also as man, he is the better Moses who leverages his favor with God for the sake of his stiff-necked people who are joined to him by faith alone. This is a meal for the members of City's Church, but if you would join us this morning in claiming the alien righteousness, claiming the righteousness of, your, of Christ, not your own righteousness, claiming the righteousness of Christ as the grounds on which we are justified, fully accepted by faith alone before a holy God then we'd invite you to eat with us. The pastors would come, and we'll pass around the elements. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.